More than just a Me Too moment, the Texas House holds hearings on how to crack down on sexual harassment at the Capitol. The story coming up today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. The face of Texas politics is changing, and both political parties would like to win over the fastest-growing ethnic demographic in Texas. Why California might be able to teach Texas a thing or two about how to get them. As the Fed considers another interest rate hike, should you buy or rent your next home? Why Hurricane Harvey's made the calculation more complicated for some. Plus, the week in Texas politics and a whole lot more. The Texas Standard gets rolling right after this. No matter where you are, a bit of good news on this TGI Friday. Yes, it's Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. So glad you're kicking off your weekend with us. Received any robocalls lately? You know, from a phone number that might look vaguely familiar? Turns out the number's been spoofed. Well, now after nearly two million other Americans complained to the Federal Communications Commission, help appears to be on the way. The government says a new verification system is being rolled out to mobile carriers to stop companies from masking their true numbers which is more than an inconvenience. In many cases, it's illegal. Details are still being worked out, but the plan is likely to include something like a green check mark popping up on your screen to indicate the call is really originating from the number it says it is. Sign of the times. Another, this one, far more profound. In the wake of worldwide demands for a change in cultures effectively condoning sexual misconduct, the Texas legislature is having a Me Too moment of sorts as we speak a House working group meeting on ways to crack down on violators in their own chamber. This after reports last year of a whisper network among women in the legislature regarding known harassers. Joining us now, Donna Howard, a Democratic member of the Texas House of Representatives. She represents the 48th District, and she's also co-chair of the work group for the House Sexual Harassment Policy. They're meeting at the Capitol today. Representative Howard, welcome back to The Standard. Thank you. How did we get here? What prompted this working group? Well, you refer to the Me Too movement, and certainly I think that's had a, a major impact on te- on legislatures throughout the country, Texas legislature being no different. Uh, there are huge power differentials in legislatures, which means it's an environment that uh, unfortunately lends itself to this kind of behavior sometimes. And the Speaker of the House appointed our working group, and we've been working diligently over the past several months, and I think we're coming up with a policy that's going to really strengthen what we have here and indicate that uh, we are not going to be tolerating harassment of any kind at the Capitol, and we're actually going to be putting some things in place that I hope will give uh, confidence to the public that we actually mean that. Well, you talk about strengthening a policy. There was a sexual harassment policy in the past, right? Yes, we've had one in place for years, but what we realized after all this came to light last year is that our policy was, was woefully inadequate, had uh, an inaccurate uh, phone number to call for making complaints. Uh, so we made a quick uh, revision that addressed some of those things as well as put more information into the policy. But because we wanted to get something in quickly, uh, we did that knowing that we were going to spend a lot more time uh, trying to come up with best practices and get something that was really solid in place. So that's what we've been working on over the past year. I, I think a lot of people wondering why, you know, if there is this culture, why not name names? Why are we not hearing the names of legislators or others on uh, uh, under the Pink Dome who 
who indeed have been part of this whisper campaign, if, as I referred to earlier? Well, I think that's part of the problem is, is uh, in any environment, we've seen that it's been a whisper campaign, that uh, that's been part of the issue of the Me Too movement, that we haven't had policies in place with enforcement of those policies uh, for uh, quite a while now, mm. and that that has made the situation very uh, difficult for those who have been harassed to come forward, because oftentimes they've been put in the position of, of, of having to justify themselves. So what we're trying to do here is to create a situation where people feel comfortable reporting and, and not having to whisper about it and name names when appropriate, and uh, that will be dealt with. Since this panel was uh, was brought together, the the one that you are co-chair of, uh, there's been the Kavanaugh hearings, of course, which has focused uh, a lot of attention on this issue. D- has that affected in any way the way that you're talking or looking at this issue? I mean, what do you want to see more of? Transparency, enforcement, what what specifically? Probably all of the above. Um, you know, the 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 challenge that legislatures in particularly in particular face is that we are elected. We have no boss per se other than the voters. And uh, as a house, we go before the voters every two years. So things can happen in that interim and there's not the same kind of accountability as there might be with an employee. Mm -hmm. So uh, all legislatures are grappling with this. How do we have something in place that um, takes um, into consideration the the politics of the situation. Um, And we think we're coming up with something. We'll be hearing more about it in our hearing today. But uh, we're coming up with something that that recognizes that we need to have third-party investigations when we're talking about elected officials. We already have in our rules and in the Constitution some some enforcements that we can uh, legitimately take, but we need to have a process in place that depoliticizes it as much as, as we are capable of doing. State Representative Donna Howard, she's co-chair of the work group for the House Sexual Harassment Policy, and she represents the 48th District. Thanks so much for speaking with us again on The Standard. Thank you, David. Texas demographers keep having to update their projections as the population of the Lone Star State swells. The latest figures indicate Latinos will outnumber non-Hispanic white people in Texas by 2022. Now, if you were with us yesterday, you heard how the midterms appear to vindicate efforts to court the Latino vote in Texas. But what about the fastest growing ethnic demographic? Who's courting the Asian vote, up 42% in the Lone Star State since 2010? And how could that demographic affect politics in Texas? Professor Karthik Ramakrishnan teaches political science and public policy at the University of California, Riverside, where the Asian demographic has been a focus of political strategists for some time. And he directs AAPIdata.com, which publishes data on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Professor, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me. I read 38% of all residents of Sugarland, Texas, identify as Asian. There are big populations in Plano, Irving, Richardson, Frisco. But Asian, of course, is a big umbrella. As a political scientist, who are we talking about? So Asians reflects a, a, a large and diverse group. Uh, it's a racial category, not a geographic category, and that's important to understand. So it includes groups like Chinese Americans, but also Indian Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Filipinos, and the like. Um, and the thing that unites them all, ironically, it's a, it's a relic of history. These were groups that were determined ineligible for U.S. citizenship 
up until the 1950s. So mm-hmm. that's what defines the Asian category. Um, so groups like Iranians, even though they might come from Asia, right. they're they're considered white uh, according to the U.S. Census that's, Bureau because they were really eligible for citizenship, uh-huh. Uh-huh. whereas Chinese were not. How do you reach out? I mean, you think about, for instance, the African-American communities or the Hispanic communities that, you know, often you reach to themes uh, related to church or faith, for example. I mean, there there are obviously social, uh, social uh, implications of, of that. Uh, how do you reach out to Asian Americans, especially given their uh, diversity? Right. One, so in addition to the national origin diversity for Asians, which also reflects itself in language diversity, which mm-hmm. uh, makes it a bit more difficult uh, to reach out to these voters, you also have religious diversity. Asians are the most religiously diverse group in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also have the highest proportion of uh, of those who do not identify with any religion. Uh, and so that makes it a bit more of a challenge. But you're seeing candidates and campaigns getting into uh, doing multi-language outreach. In fact, in, in Texas, uh, in the Sugar Land area, you had a, a candidate who spoke multiple languages and did outreach uh, with his team uh, in, in various languages. So um, it's a matter of investment. Um, on top of that, you have a significant proportion of Asian Americans who are a second generation immigrant mm-hmm. uh, or are, have relatively high levels of English proficiency like Indians and Filipinos. So what a lot of campaigns do is they just look at prior voters and reach out to them. And they're not paying attention to this new electorate that is growing pretty quickly. Do you think that, in fact, uh, we could see an impact uh, in the next election cycle? Are we already seeing that impact here in Texas? What does your data tell you? Where we'll see the impact in Texas is most likely at the local level in cities like Houston uh, and even in cities like Austin. In Dallas, it's in the metropolitan area where where you're going to see more of an effect. Um, Statewide, of course, when it comes to close contests like you had for Senate, Mm -hmm. um, you will see people paying attention to the Asian American vote, like other communities, because uh, when it comes to very tight contests, every vote or every hundreds of votes matters. Uh, And so you'll start to see that kind of attention. Where we've seen attention for a while uh, is is in places like Houston metropolitan area where you've had an Asian population for for a significant Asian population for a while now, but now they're getting more civically engaged. And uh, out, outreach by parties and campaigns are making a big difference. Do you have a sense of whether Democrats or Republicans are better poised to take advantage of that demographic? So nationally, we've seen uh, Asian Americans favoring Democrats over Republicans by about a two-to-one margin. In states like Texas and in the South, we've seen a much more competitive vote between Democrats and Republicans. So uh, one thing to note about the Asian American population it's the only racial group that is majority immigrant. Uh, and so they, they're they very persuadable. They did not grow up in Republican households or Democratic households. So uh, party investments will make a huge difference in terms of how they will vote in the future. Professor Karthik Ramakrishnan teaches political science and public policy at UC Riverside. He also directs AAPIdata.com, which publishes data on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Professor, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. My pleasure.
Happy Friday there, Wells. Happy Friday, David. Ask Wells Dunbar, social media editor here at The Standard. What are Texans talking about? Well, here's a topic from national politics that's reverberating in Texas. The question of who will lead the Democratic majority House of Representatives when it convenes in the new year. Mm-hmm. Current minority leader Nancy Pelosi, who has previously served as House leader, is the odds-on favorite, although a hand of dem- handful of Democratic representatives have said it's time for new leadership. We put the topic up for discussion on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard there. Aaron Aguilar says Pelosi is one of the savviest people to hold that position in modern history. No one knows their caucus like she does. As much as I'm all for new energy coming in, we need the experience. Meanwhile, Christina Ornelas says if they can find a more progressive speaker with her experience, then I'd say replace her. But I don't know if that person exists. Hmm. And Alexandra Trojanowski says Pelosi is a good fundraiser, but that avails nothing after losing Congress year after year. Time hmm. for a change. You know, Lots of reactions to this one. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Congressman uh, Philemon Vela, uh, Vela uh, yes, of South Texas, Texas he is he is indeed pushing uh, for a change in House leadership. Uh, and there are some red dog Democrats, as they call themselves, red dog caucus, uh, more conservative. They're sort of fearful of what it might mean if Pelosi were to lose this battle. We'd love to know what you think, Texas. Reach out to us on Twitter at handle his courses at Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is waiting for you. He'll be back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen, including a healthy diet and exercise, can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Business and your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. Forbes is reporting this week on the top cities where it's cheaper to buy than to rent. Three Texas towns make the top ten, including Fort Worth, El Paso, and Arlington. But the realities of making such a decision are far more complicated than consulting a list. Consider those hit by Hurricane Harvey. Better to have a home to call your own or let a landlord worry about rebuilding after the next time? Florian Martin of Houston Public Media explores the calculus. So this day, the outside of the house is done, just the inside, uh, we're still working on it. Guadalupe Morris grew up in the Hidden Forest neighborhood just north of I-10 East and still lives in the same house with her mom and brother. She says they plan on staying here, despite the frequent flooding. The house previously took water during Tropical Storm Allison in 2001 and Hurricane Ike in 2008. The property's 2018 value dropped to a third of last year's, entirely due to structural damage. My mom, I guess she's just hard-headed, you know, it was her first house that that she owned and, um, you know, being an immigrant from Mexico coming over here, she worked really hard to get her, you know, her dream house. But is it worth it in an area that floods often? Morris says they like the neighborhood because it's quiet and for their friendly neighbors. On top of that, it's affordable. But instead of owning, would she be better off renting? If it ever floods again, she wouldn't have to worry about rebuilding. She could just move. Morris doesn't think it would make much of a difference. Seeing um, all my stuff, like my, my prom pictures, my baby pictures, my graduation pictures, my diploma, everything. Not even mine, but like my brother's as well, my mom's stuff. Everything was just destroyed and um, it was just really hard. So I feel like even if you're renting or owning the house, you still go through the same thing. Right after Harvey, thousands of homeowners moved into apartments and rental homes while their houses were repaired. It's hard to say how many state renters, but what is known is that the apartment industry did not see an exodus of renters, at least not on a net basis. And that could be an indication storm victims were returning to their now-repaired houses. Bruce McClenney is the president of ApartmentData.com. 
He says apartments have seen really good numbers in 2018. And I wasn't expecting that at all. I was expecting more of a flat based upon an anticipation that more renters, that were homeowners, would be moving out. But again, it's hard to say because Houston's economy was robust. Lots of people moving here and renting. Meanwhile, home sales have been growing. Nothing that indicates that our market has shifted in any significant amount from ownership to rental due to Harvey. Ed Wolf is president of Beth Wolf Realtors. He points out 2018 is on pace to be another record year for home sales. For people who've been used to living in a home that they owned and are now in a rental situation, after about three to five months, they start recognizing what they liked about ownership. Michelle Pollack is the 2018 president of the Houston Apartment Association. She says from speaking to apartment managers, it doesn't seem that very many former homeowners stayed renters. We were hopeful that they might see the quality of apartments had changed, that lifestyle, the amenities available, lock and leave communities, um, all of the services, and that people would want to stay. But we have really experienced the mass of people moving back into their homes. What's more, according to the Houston Association of Realtors, condo and single-family home lease volumes have overall declined this year. Jim Gaines is the chief economist at Texas A&M's Real Estate Center. He says, sure, for people who want to live in flood-prone areas, renting may be better than owning. But people who are ready to settle down will still buy. And in Houston, flooding will always be a risk, no matter where you live. You may or may not get hit. If you get hit, it's catastrophic. But it could hit one side of the street and not the other. That's why he says for anyone buying a house in Greater Houston, flood insurance is crucial. In Houston, I'm Florian Martin for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. 1.6 million veterans call Texas home. That makes sense if you think of the many bases here and how 30% of the adult population of Colleen near Fort Hood served in the military. But thousands of vets are having trouble getting the military to live up to its promises with complaints mounting over delayed or missing benefit payments under the GI Bill. There was a testy House hearing on Capitol Hill yesterday to explore the matter, and Leo Shane was there. He's deputy editor of the Military Times. Leo, thanks for your time. No, thanks for the invite. How many veterans have been affected by these delayed GI Bill benefits? Yeah, it's a it's a tough number and one that the uh, the VA was struggling with last night. They've got uh, you know thousands of vets who are facing delays here, but only a handful who are facing delays of over uh, over sixty days. So the question becomes. How long is too long of a wait? Some of these folks have been waiting for all of their money. Some of these folks have been waiting for portions of their money. So VA was struggling in the hearing to sort of give that uh, clear answer on who's really facing hardship and who's maybe just facing some inconvenience. And we're talking about what? Putting food on the table? What sort of benefits are we really referring to? Yeah, these are these are the housing and living stipends that go to uh, students when they're uh, student vets when they're attending college. So uh, for some, this isn't tuition, but but in some cases, tuition money is, has been entwined here too. But the idea behind these stipends is folks don't have to go get a second job. Folks don't have to find a way to, to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. They'll be able to get this stipend and, and be able to survive. So if this gets delayed by two months, it, it can be rent money. It can be grocery money. And, uh, you know, a lot of college students don't have savings to dip into to start off with. You know, is my understanding that officials for the VA are blaming a 50-year-old IT system for these problems, saying 
that the system's just been unable to deal with uh, changes in, in, in how the VA delivers benefits. Why hasn't that system changed in 50 years? That's a, that's a real head-scratcher. Well, that's part of the question. VA for a while has complained about these legacy uh, IT systems and their difficulty updating them. Uh, there was a major change to how the GI Bill benefits were calculated last year, so GI, so VA had to find a way to to work within this system and and update it and and uh, get things. But you know, veterans groups I've talked to have said this this bill got passed you know, two summers ago. Um, back in the spring, they were hooting and hollering saying we're going to have problems if you guys don't get this fixed. And VA all along through the summer was saying, no, no, the, the IT systems will be ready. They will be ready. Now, three months into the semester, they're saying, well, we, you know, they weren't ready. We couldn't adapt them. There's just too many complexities. So yes, the IT systems are to blame, but also everyone saw this coming for quite a few months. You know, I think a lot of listeners probably shaking their heads, especially those who recall the stories, the horror stories that we've heard from the VA medical uh, system. Are they related in any way? Not not uh, directly related, but it does speak to this larger issue of, uh, you know, disaster culture at VA. How much preparation can they do? How much do they see these problems coming down the pike? Uh, and how quickly can they adapt to things? You know, VA is a massive bureaucracy, 370,000 employees. They've got more than 9 million vets who get benefits. So when small things go wrong, they can have wide-ranging effects. And I think you know, the commonality between some of those those old medical delays and what we're seeing now is just this idea that VA doesn't seem to be able to get ahead of a lot of problems. Mm. And then when when they go wrong, they affect thousands upon thousands of veterans. What's the way forward? What, what's the immediate follow up as a result of this hearing? Yeah, VA wouldn't give actual deadlines on when they think all these IT systems will be updated. So uh, lawmakers were a little frustrated with that. They wanted to hear more specifics. VA admitted there's going to be some IT problems that prolong into the spring. The question is going to be, again, are these folks who maybe are getting, you know, adjusted uh, housing payments that, that aren't as big as they need to be? Or are these going to be folks who don't get any housing payments and are really in financial distress? Leo Shane is deputy editor for Military Times. He was at yesterday's hearing. Leo, thanks a ton. No, thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to provide mid-market companies a real-time view of their financials, cash, and liquidity while streamlining accounting processes. More at softwareispromised.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. New data show Texas leads the nation in deportations through a major immigration enforcement program. El Paso County saw the most deportations in the country, with Harris County ranking third nationwide. Houston Public Media's Elizabeth Trovault reports. Texas averaged some 2,000 deportations per month during the first nine months of fiscal year 2018. That's according to new Syracuse University data. Total deportations in Harris County alone were over 1,800 in that same time frame. Numbers offer a glimpse at immigration enforcement at a state and county level, but not a complete picture, says Syracuse University's Susan Long. It would be nice to do this for all ICE removals, but ICE contends that it isn't possible. Long says ICE claims to only track secure communities data at a county level. 
Those are deportations that have relied on FBI fingerprint data and often involve local law enforcement. What we do have are secure communities, which are a very substantial part of ICE removals. Previous research on the Secure Communities program showed the vast majority of people deported hadn't committed violent crimes. In Houston, I'm Elizabeth Troval. Green sea turtles along the Texas Gulf Coast are on the mend after being stunned by cold temperatures earlier this week. When this happens, the sea turtles can no longer swim or move. They float to the water's surface, making them easy prey. Chris Havel is a senior aquarist at SeaWorld San Antonio who was helping with recovery efforts in Laguna Madre this week. He says these stunning events are becoming more common. One reason is man-made changes along the coast, such as shipping channels. If those shipping channels weren't there, A lot of times the animals in the past would get natural cues as the air starts to cool down gradually, they would leave and they'd have a harder time getting back in there. But these jetties and these channels are making it easier for the turtles to get in there. It's providing a lot of food sources for them to stay in there longer than they would normally have in the past. Havel says just under 20 turtles were recovered in the two days his team was working on the coast. He expects the turtles to be released in the next few days as water temperatures heat back up. The cost of gas dropped again this week just ahead of the Thanksgiving travel rush. Joshua Zuber is a spokesperson for AAA Texas. We have been seeing those prices decrease uh, as we've moved into November and right now sitting uh, at an average price of $2.37 a gallon in Texas. Nearly 4 million Texans are expected to hit the road for the holiday. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome, Texas-based chain-stitch embroidery design and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at fortlonesome.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. The shale revolution has pumped billions of dollars into the Texas economy, but it's also pumped huge volumes of wastewater into the ground. Is there a price for that? Though there's been some debate on just how fracking influences seismic activity, new research from scientists at the University of Texas at Austin purports to strengthen the link between wastewater disposal from fracking and tremors folks have been experiencing in oil country. Joining us in the studio, the lead author of the report, Bridget Scanlon and Peter Hennings with the Center for Integrated Seismicity Research at UT, both with UT's Bureau of Economic Geology. Bridget, Peter, welcome to Texas Standard. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, The report was published earlier this month in the Journal seismological research letters. Uh, Bridget, what was the specific question you're trying to answer here? We were trying to understand uh, linkages between water management from oil and gas and uh, seismicity. And uh, we looked at a number of different uh, regions, including Oklahoma, where they have experienced a lot of seismicity mm-hmm. and other regions where we have had little or no seismicity. I see. One, one thing you can do just looking at data points is you can make correlations. The question has been causation. Does your report get us closer to an answer here? Well, our report uh, was basically focusing how which we should manage produced water from oil and gas to try to minimize seismicity. And uh, we looked at data that had been previously examined a few years ago mm-hmm. that came up with uh, the conclusion that it was the rate of injection into disposal wells that was the main cause of seismicity. Uh, Peter, you've been looking at, uh, at, at the actual rates of seismicity. As, uh, tell us a little bit about the history here. When did this first start? to draw the attention of researchers such as yourself? Well, in Texas, uh, for earthquakes to be felt at the surface, the, uh, the event magnitude needs to be in the low twos or higher. Uh, 
We're talking about on the Richter scale. On the Richter scale, that's correct. And um, the historic average for felt earthquakes is two to three per year. Mm -hmm. But beginning in about 2011, that rate increased dramatically, uh, especially in the Fort Worth Basin, Dallas-Fort Worth area, where in 2015, um, there were um, over 90 felt events uh, that year. Why? uh, I mean, fracking's been going on for some time before 2011, right? It has, uh, indeed. In fact, uh, hydraulic fracturing was pioneered in the 1950s. Right, right. So why is it that we're starting to to, to feel this now, if in fact there is that connection with uh, uh, with fracking? Well, in Dr. Scanlon's paper, it's identified that it's, the, it's these large volumes of wastewater that now have to be managed, and disposing them in deep strata is the, the, the number one uh, method currently used. But then that has this consequence in certain areas. Dr. Scanlon, uh, why are we pumping water into, back into the ground? Uh, what, what's, is that the m- best, most efficient way of dealing with wastewater? Uh, yes. Uh, we have produced oil and gas for over 100 years in mm-hmm. Texas, and we have put that water back into high permeability res- reservoirs. The difference now is that we're producing from low permeability shales, mm-hmm. and we can't put that water into those shale reservoirs, and we have to put it into different units. That can change the pressure and then can be could be linked to seismicity. So let's talk a little bit about how this builds on what we already know about the connection between oil and gas extraction and earthquakes. How does this how does this research that you've done here build on what has been reported in the past? Well, different studies have emphasized different aspects of produced water management. Some uh, emphasize the rate that you inject the water. Others indicate the cumulative volume in Mm -hmm. a region. And others uh, emphasize the the distance from the crystalline basement uh, to the disposal wells. This study indicates that all three factors are important and need to be considered. So don't look at these in isolation. We need to think about them all together. Right. And the reason we think that we haven't seen much seismicity outside of Oklahoma is that most of the disposal has been in shallow units far from the basement. I see. That's where the highest rates of these earthquakes are taking place, Oklahoma. Correct. Yeah. Uh, This study also looks at some factors that could reduce the risk of these earthquakes. What are those? I think the the main factor would be to reuse the produced water to fracture the next set of wells. So we get it indirectly back into the reservoir Hmm. by using it for fracking the next set of wells. Why is that not being done already? It seems like a no-brainer almost. Logistics is very difficult. And so you have to have the supply of produced water match the demand for hydraulic fracturing. And if you're trying to maintain a lease and drilling in different regions, Mm -hmm. it may be difficult. And it's very difficult to pump water from over large distances. Uh, Dr. Scanlon, what are you hoping that your uh, research will, uh, will accomplish in the long term? I think uh, I'm hoping that uh, reuse of produced water for hydraulic fraction will expand in the future. And I think uh, with increased infrastructure for storage and transporting this produced water, that will happen. We've been speaking with Bridget Scanlon and Peter Hennings. They're researchers with UT's Bureau of Economic Geology. Congratulations on the research. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. Thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org.
name is Chris Wimmer. I assume, like most people, that Bevo was the first mascot of the University of Texas football team. It turns out it was a little dog um, that was owned by the first Texas uh, University of Texas athletic director. He would just roam around. He would go to different classrooms and check in on students. He started attending sporting events. He became kind of the unofficial mascot of the what they called the varsity football team at that time. Of course, it didn't have a mascot. We didn't. They weren't called the Longhorns then. So Pig started traveling to all the different games, and it was at one of those games where he was standing next to a football player who had the nickname Pig. The name Pig was then given to the dog itself. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, he ran into a lot of a problem that a lot of pets run into. He was hit by a car in 1923, uh, right there close to campus. Uh, it was thought at the beginning after his injury that he was actually going to survive. Everyone thought he was probably all right. It turned out that his injuries were more internal. And a few days after he was hit by a car, he passed away. There was a huge funeral for him. I think it said something like uh, a thousand people turned up. And, and then, of course, the student body of the University of Texas honored him with a funeral procession uh, and buried him on campus, a place that you can kind of still visit today. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to discern exactly where his burial spot is, but it is still uh, on campus today. I think this is just one of the earliest concepts that we can see where a mascot has become not only associated with the team, but almost critical to, to the team's function. He went everywhere with the team. The students loved him. The players loved him. He really ingrained himself into the society. My name is Chris Wimmer. I'm from Des Moines, Iowa originally. I live in Brenham, Texas now, and I'm a full-time podcast producer and host. You're listening to The Texas Standard. This is The Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. An area of the Texas Gulf Coast that contributed significantly to the state's oyster harvest is in trouble. Thanks to disasters, natural and man-made, along with overfishing, the number of oysters in Galveston Bay has reached near levels of extinction. Now, fishery and wildlife experts across the state, and indeed the country, are pinning their hopes on a plan to bring the bivalves back. Lance Robinson is the deputy director of the Coastal Fisheries Division at Texas Parks and Wildlife. Lance, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Nice to be here. How bad off is the oyster population in Galveston Bay? I mean, what, what are some of the contributing factors here? Well, certainly we've, we've seen a number of changes that have happened over the last 10 years or so. Uh, I think everything really um, hinged on Hurricane Ike uh, in 2008. Um, prior to that, that storm, Galveston Bay accounted for uh, 70, 80 percent uh, of all the oysters harvested and landed in the state of Texas. Overnight, that storm, uh, with the sedimentation that uh, the storm surge brought in, uh, silted over and killed over half of the oyster mm. reefs in that system. And, and consequently, the, the landings have uh, dropped since then. And, and 
number of other issues that have happened in, uh, since that time uh, that you uh, sort of alluded to, some, some natural disasters, uh, flooding, uh, drought, uh, certainly the high demand for oysters uh, on the market uh, led to you know, a, a concerted effort by industry to meet that demand. And all of those uh, impacts, all of those uh, incidents kind of led to this cumulative impact of events that, that have kind of got us to the point today where uh, you know, the, the production of oysters in Galveston Bay is, is just a small percentage of what it uh, had been in the past. Is this a problem unique to Galveston Bay or are we seeing this up and down the Gulf? Well, throughout the Gulf, uh, we're seeing declines in oysters uh, in other states as well. A lot of that's being driven by uh, freshwater events, flooding, and, and certainly uh, harvest pressure is high. Again, kind of reaching that, that high demand for this product. Yeah. A lot of people like oysters, and, and so uh, the, certainly the industry is trying to help meet that demand. Okay. Uh, well, so, so what is the big idea? What, uh, what could be done to bring the oysters back? Is it possible? Well, certainly it is. I mean, we have to can't lose sight of the fact that oysters uh, are an incredibly resilient animal. I mean, they've been around for millennia. They they live in a very dynamic environment. These these bays and estuaries uh, where they live uh, go through extremes, droughts and high salinities and flooding events and temperature extremes. And the oysters can't move. They're sessile organisms attached. Uh, and so they have to withstand all of those changes. And so that's working in our favor. Certainly the animal is, is very resilient. It has some physiological um, unique characteristics that also allowed it to be a survivor. So the goal here is to get substrate back into the bay. Uh, and we're looking at a number of um, techniques and methodologies to try to get more of that substrate into the now, into Galveston not, Bay. Not to get lost on words like substrate, but what we're talking about, as I understand it, is like an oyster reef? It is. It's an oyster reef. We're putting down a hard material, usually uh, oyster shell is ideal, uh, but we can also use other materials like um, uh, um, river rock or limestone. And so we place that material on the bottom and that provides that, that surface, that hard surface that is needed for that juvenile oyster to attach to cement and begin to grow. So would you, so in theory, I mean, is it possible that you could just sort of pour uh, a, a, a wall of clean concrete and, and, and hope that the oysters come back? Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. We'll place that that crumbled material, whether it's concrete or the river rock, uh, like uh, gravel uh, size, and it'll just be broadcast or distributed right across the bottom. Uh, oyster larvae, they're, they they look for dark crevices. So the the more crevices and openings hmm. within that reef structure, the better for oysters to to recruit to. Let's talk best case scenario here. Uh, are we talking about? I mean, if this if this works. How long would it take to get you back up to the levels that you used to see in Galveston Bay? Uh, you know, from the time we put that material in the water uh, and it gets colonized by these juvenile oysters, it'll take two years for that oyster to reach uh, that three-inch legal size for harvest. And so uh, it's just continually getting that material down on the bottom and allowing those oysters to colonize and grow and and then they will spawn and add more uh, larvae into the water, more juveniles. And I have to ask before I let you go, has this process started yet of building those reefs, or what are you waiting for? Well, we've 
created a number of reefs around the bay since the hurricane since Hurricane Ike, probably at uh, a little over 12, 1,500 acres that we were able to restore um, at a cost of you know 12, 15 million dollars. Uh, and so this effort that we're you know working collaboratively with the Nature Conservancy mm-hmm. is looking at a little little different approach. It's kind of a landscape scale approach, looking at the use of uh, what we would call uh, a sanctuary reef. We build these reefs where uh, there would be no harvest allowed, and therefore those oysters that grow on those structures provide the seed or the larvae I that see. help colonize other parts of the bay. And so we, it's a bigger approach, more of a landscape approach to uh, uh, restoration, and, and we think it's, uh, some, it looks, looks very promising as, as some of the preliminary data that we've collected. We've been speaking with Lance Robinson. He is Deputy Director of the Coastal Fisheries Division at Texas Parks and Wildlife. Lance, thanks again. You're very welcome. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horn frogs strive to be a force for the greater good like Dr. Kyle Walker, who uses data mapping and open source software to help organizations serve at-risk communities. TCU, lead on. I am Jody Edgerton, and I'm with the Typewriter Rodeo. And we are a group that crafts custom poems on vintage typewriters. You give us a word, an idea, a phrase, something you'd like a poem about, and we will write you a poem on the spot. This poem is a request from public radio reporter Will Burney. The weather in Texas in the fall. The high yesterday was 103, so I wore my best flip-flops to work. But today, it only barely hit 45. I borrowed some socks from the clerk. I'm finding my perfect Texas fall groove by always being prepared, layer upon layer upon more layers, too, enough so I have layers to share. Bring it on, cold fronts. I've got this wool hat that I pull out one day every year, but it magically transforms into a koozie so it can hold my hot summer day beer. I love a good forecast, the roller coaster ride of fronts and jet streams that flow. And I'm always ready for the next shifting wind. Bring it hot. Bring it cold. Bring it snow. I'm Jody Edgerton, and you're on Texas Standard Time. Support for the Typewriter Radio comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Hey, got an idea for a poem? Let us know. Send your requests on social media or email us Standard at kut.org. You can keep up with the Typewriter Radio anytime on iTunes or wherever you get finer podcasts. Here we are, the final Friday before the big Thanksgiving holiday, but we couldn't let you go without spending some time talking about the week that was in Texas politics. Lucky for us, we're joined by Juan Carlos Huerta. He is professor of political science at Texas A&M University in Corpus Christi. Professor Huerta, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Let's backtrack to Monday, the first day for Texas lawmakers filing bills before the January session gets underway. Uh, Any surprises that you noted? Well... When you look at these early bills that are being filed, I mean, a lot of it is um, positioning, mm. trying to get things um, set up for the next, this upcoming session. Some of them are very symbolic to say, oh, gosh, I introduced this bill to cut taxes by X percent. Right. When I was looking through the news, um, I noticed that there were um, some bills dealing with uh, uh, marijuana, one of them with um, making it a civil 
offense and other to try to expand the uh, medical marijuana. And, you know, this is one that could get some traction this time. The Republican Party, I understand, has uh, changed its platform also to change marijuana to a civil crime instead of criminal. And I think we also saw some on school finance. Right. Perhaps that'll be something that will make some progress on this uh, legislative session. But, you know, of course, that depends on the leadership by and large, because they're the ones who uh, uh, can coalesce votes, rally the votes, uh, uh, get uh, bills to the floor. What do you make of, of the person who seems to have gathered a lot of support as the next speaker of the Texas House? You're talking about Dennis Bonin here. One thing that's caught attention here for those of us on the Gulf Coast is he's, a, he's somebody who, um, Angleton, is not very far from uh, the coast. It's a coastal county. So, you know, will there be some attention given to coastal issues such as windstorm insurance? He sure coalesced a lot of support very quickly. And he set out some things. He set out, you know, school finance being an important issue to him. Clearly, he's going to be a Republican. They have a majority. You know, I did see some groups, uh, um, Democratic groups, saying, you know, we, we want to work with him. There is an expectation that he will still continue that tradition of you know, really standing up for the House representatives, that he's not going to just roll over and do whatever you know the governor wants done, whatever Dan Patrick wants done, that he'll be a strong advocate for the House. I, I'm, I'm looking at the clock here. We're almost out of time, but I, I, I want to ask you about that race in Texas's 23rd district, a U.S. congressional race, uh, still up for grabs because the, the margin is so close, but I understand Democrat Gina Ortiz-Jones was, uh, was in Washington, D.C. this week. Yes. Oh, I, last time I checked, it was about 1,000 votes. But, you know, if you could be the winner, might as well be up there in Washington, D.C., learning the ropes. Talking about freshman orientation there on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, she yep. went on, uh, on to Washington. That's not unheard of for lawmakers to attend if, if the races are still undecided. Yeah, I mean, that, that right. It's not unheard of, and it makes sense for her to go ahead and attend that. You'd hate to find out you're the, you know, you did win and then not know what's going on and miss that very important orientation. Yeah, uh, uh, we should point out, though, that that 1,000-point margin uh, you were just mentioning uh, still in Republican Will Hurd's favor. He's the incumbent. Juan Carlos Huertes, professor of political science at Texas A&M University in Corpus Christi. Professor, thanks so much for spending a little time with us on the Texas Standard. Happy Thanksgiving. You're welcome. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is our social media editor. As we head into this weekend, what are Texans talking about, Wells? Hi, David. Well, we're continuing to hear from folks on Facebook about Nancy Pelosi and whether she should be Speaker of the House once Democrats take the majority Mm -hmm. in the new year. Christopher Bart says, I think for the moment Pelosi is the right choice. I think I'm ready to see changes in the Democratic leadership, but Pelosi knows how to get things done and can set the stage. Meanwhile, Emily Barrett says, how about giving someone else a chance to hit the ball? She needs to step aside and let youth and new ideas take the reins. And so we'll have, I guess, some sort of more clarity here on this relatively soon. The House Democrats should pick their leader sometime after Thanksgiving with a final vote on the speaker coming uh, in early January once the Congress is uh, formally sworn in. Yeah, sometime after Thanksgiving. So let's see, they go on Thanksgiving break pretty soon here. So. Yeah. So I mean, I don't the only Thanksgiving many... break calendar I'm thinking about is my children's daycare because <laughs> yeah. that's going to be a big mess yeah. next week. Could, but... could be a while. I mean, especially given how contentious this has become, but they're getting an early start. So yeah, definitely. Go. Lots of other topics on our listeners' minds out there, David. Uh, this is uh, J.A. Brow on our Facebook page. He says, going from uh, 95 degrees to uh, under 60 weather-wise and then zero to 60 is uh, weighing heavily on him, echoing that typewriter uh, rodeo poem Mm, we heard about these uh, winners in Texas. And Anastasia Beaverhausen, she says, 
salmonella turkey just in time for Thanksgiving, referring there to uh, ground turkey recall. None, none of the birds, none of the big ones that mm. are going to be on your table right. affected as far as we know. That's but good. obviously a reminder to uh, be safe. And some interesting breaking news, uh, David, here uh, tweeted by uh, one of our uh, reporters at the home station here, KET, Audrey McGlinchey. Yes. She tweets that a Texas appeals court has ruled that Austin's paid sick leave ordinance violates the state constitution because it's preempted by the Texas Minimum Wage Act. I am just seeing this being reported by yeah. the Austin American Statesman as well. Now, this was a, a sort of a big issue as we head into the Texas mm-hmm. uh, uh, next session of the Texas legislature. I believe at least one bill had already been introduced by someone in the House uh, suggesting that the uh, state lawmakers, at least the Republicans, were mm-hmm. going to try to override. Yeah, try to zero this out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's my understanding it would interfere with uh, the minimum wage law because I guess this could be seen as some sort of benefit. But obviously this was just a, a, that's the argument a, a, that's made. Yeah. A, an appeals court, so wouldn't be surprised to see this one play out a little bit further. Or maybe not, you know, because it sort of does have a target on its back going into the legislature next year. Right, exactly. Of course, uh, we'll have to wait and see and uh, what, what Austin was City of Austin uh, chooses to do. It's one that's being watched not just in the Texas capital city, but statewide. Alas, that music means it's all over for us for the week here on The Standard, at least the broadcast. You can keep up with the news at texasstandard.org. We're going to be back on Monday, and we hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire team here, I'm David Brown wishing you a wonderful weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation. Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. Public Radio International.